and welcome to Need to Know, your weekly investment podcast brought to you by the experts at Coots. I'm Sarah Muir and I'm joined as always by Alan Higgins. Now, each week on the podcast, we look at the three things investors need to know. Now, that could be for the week ahead, but we also focus on longer term trends. And Alan does the uh, research or reads the research, I should say, so that you don't have to. Um, But before we get to that, Alan, as always, we've got a little bit of a catch up to do. Um, First off, last week, you talked about some research that Merrill Lynch had done looking at contrarian signals. And you promised us you were going to come back with some hard data. Um, so what, what what's the data then? How successful are these contrarian signals at predicting a kind of rise in markets? Okay, so there are other banks that do this, but we're just picking on the Merrill Lynch one. Hi, Sarah, by the way, I should say. And yes, they've got a so-called bull bear indicator. And basically they go bullish when everyone else seems to be bearish. Uh, what what does that mean? It means people selling. So they measure outflows and they measure sentiment and they measure the amount of cash that they can see in portfolios, amongst other indicators. So since 2002, there's been 20 signals when it's been very low, i.e. people have been very bearish, including one mm-hmm. right now. OK, out of these 20, sorry, uh, 21, including one today, mm-hmm. out, of, out of the 20 that we've seen in the past, Basic pretty good news. Again, as a reminder, the, the median three-month return is about 8%. So that's okay. median, out of 20. But there are four big declines in okay. there, you know, more than 5%. So four okay. times out of 20, it really didn't work at all. Mm. There was also four very big increases, more than 10%. And the rest, of you know, up a bit, uh, generally up, yeah. the odd small decline. But I think the big picture is, 16 out of 20 ain't bad, to paraphrase Meatloaf. Mm. Do you know that song? <laughs> yeah, I do, I do know that Two song. Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, we, exactly. need, we need to get that. We need to incorporate that at some stage. We do. So, okay, so more times than not, these contrarian signals actually prove to be a, a, a good thing. They, you know, they, These very ultra, ultra bearish kind of mood in markets actually proves to be a good time to go into markets. That's essentially what we're saying then. Not all the time, but more exactly. more often than not. Okay, nothing is guaranteed here, and you know, yeah. many teams, including our own investment team, take these kind of indicators into account. Mm. Can you can you use any one indicator on its own? Definitely not. It's dangerous. Yeah. but it just goes to show. Next time, uh, obviously, we've moved on a bit from the pessimism. We're a bit, you know, uh, that I, this was obviously a signal some uh, one month ago when uh, the world did look very pessimistic in terms of especially equities. Um, but just as a reminder, next time, you know, we're all fretting about the world. Remember, ideally look to do the opposite. Yeah. OK. And that, that's what contrarian signals are all about. OK. Well, that's well, thank you very much for that. That's very interesting. Now, I know we were chatting this week earlier in the week because there's been a lot of press about this has got absolutely nothing to do with finance, but it's got a lot to do with, well, you and me. Basically, according to Nikki Haslam, I think we're both quite common, aren't we? Because he's just well, released his latest, yes. what, what he thinks is common list, of which I think you they tick quite a few of your boxes, don't they? Huh? Yeah, a lot. I mean, I mean, some are, <laughs> I admit, being common. So Aperol Spritz or Aperol yeah. in general, you know, fine. Yeah, kind of is common, but I like it. It's refreshing. But relevant to us, podcasts. <clears throat> podcasts yes, I know. Are now common. But what, do you, what, what, tell, tell people, who is this strange guy, this strange so, man? Nicky Haslam is, um, he's uh, an old Etonian. He's an interior designer. I probably used the wrong word because he probably doesn't like the, the term. 
but he's very he's become more famous in recent years because he produces a list on a sort of fairly regular basis of what he thinks is common and it's completely arbitrary and everybody gets quite exercised about it and there's really no point because it's all I suspect a little bit tongue in cheek. I mean, previous inclusions have been things like hedge funds, skiing in France, which I believe is another one of yours, and um, art as well. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure how you can say art is common, but this all harks back to that good old Nancy Mitford in 1955, to writing about you and non-you and how language kind of marked you out as being upper class or not upper class. But yeah, so Nikki Haslam, we're, we're basically officially on Nikki Haslam's common list because we do a podcast. I think where he's slightly on to something on podcasts um, is there's so many. And look, yeah. we're, we're writing one, so thank you for listening to ours. Um, but I do listen to others. And you may have noticed we have changed the format because I realise myself, I listen to podcasts late. And so there's no point. So there's about to be US inflation. And don't worry, yeah. we'll cover it in a bigger picture scene next week. Absolutely. No coming the data because most people listen to podcasts late walking or in their car etc mm. um and there's an awful lot of competition I've, got, I've I've probably got three or four i need to listen to yeah no you're right actually i've got some that i do listen to the minute they come out and i dive on them like crazy but i've got other ones that i do listen to regularly but yeah it might be a week later that i'm actually listening to them that's a fair point and then the only other thing this relates back to a previous episode we talked about um Birkin bags and sort of Birkin as an investment. And for those that want to listen to that episode, it was from the 8th of August. So I was doing a little bit of um, research, I should say, on uh, Sotheby's website, because um, they've just had a very big sale of, um, of luxury handbags, of which a number were Birkins. And it was interesting to sort of look at the prices. Um, and Certainly the most expensive one in the recent sale they had was uh, a very smart uh, red crocodile one that sold for around 53,000 Swiss francs, which I think is what, about 52,000, 51,000 pounds roughly. But interestingly, and if we were talking about as an investment, um, actually the Birkin 25, just in a normal sort of finish, which is the rarer of the Birkins, which is the smallest of the Birkins, actually holds its value up fairly well i think the retail price and this is a tricky thing is actually trying to uh, trying to identify what the retail price is because you can't just go into an ermo store and go hello i'd like to buy that birkin up on the shelf please how much is it because it's not for sale essentially but um a guide price of around about ten thousand dollars which if it's in really good condition will resale for up to twenty one thousand dollars so you you're getting your money back. I mean, obviously, you've got fees and things to to be considered on that as a bid offer spread, as you would say. But essentially, that's not bad. But if you look at the top top end, the most exclusive end, which is your your Himalayan Birkin, so cold because it's crocodile and it's dyed to sort of grade from dark grey to white to mimic snow capped Himalayan peaks. Apparently, um, if you get one of those with sort of gold hardware and diamond studded um the retail price is around about quarter of a million but they would expect to reach an auction around three hundred fifteen thousand. i'm talking dollars here Surely it's not bad would call that common that specific <laughs> it, it, almost bag. definitely that is common yeah almost definitely that but is the common. basic one i get and, and so look, what we said before we were looking for Assets that compete with equities in particular. Mm. Um, we talked about Wimbledon debentures. By the way, Wimbledon is common, according to Nicky yes. 
Um, <laughs> and, 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 and as is Henley Regatta, apparently, as well. OK, there you go. And, um, yeah, so the, there's no doubt. You mentioned bid-offer spreads. I'm glad you did that. But luxury stocks have been great investments as well. So we stand by stocks. But, look, we concede there are other investments. But it's quite a challenge to get a Birkin bag. You know what? I might go to a Hermes shop uh, oh. I, when I'm next in Bond Street. And I'm going to basically mm-hmm. say, have you got any Birkin bags for sale today? And I'll mm. I'll come back, and, and, you know, if they have, I'd better buy one. But it's a bit I don't. But I, it's a bit... just see if they laugh in my face. So okay. There's bit of research for me to do next time I'm in Bond Street. I was going to say, that's your field research, to go to Bond Street and go into an Hermes store and see if yeah. you see if they'll sell you a Birkin. Okay. I await with bated breath. All right. The only other thing I wanted to mention is I did notice that Moody's have been a bit negative about US debt. Um, Sort of thoughts on that. I mean, probably we'll reflect on that when we come to sort of talk about US inflation. But because we were talking last week, weren't we, about the sort of unsustainable debt levels that we're seeing across economies. And maybe that's reflected a little bit in Moody's sort of negative comments about US debt. Yeah, uh, um, I mean, the US is a standout right now with with budget deficits, as you mentioned, depending on your measure, it's six to eight percent, but in times of strong growth. And um, it's a bit of a worry, although I do remember um, a famous Ronald Reagan story uh, back in the day um, when he was one of the first to go for, obviously, different uh, politics, but one of the first to go for deficits. And true story, he was interviewed... um, yeah, you know, by, by the press. And, you know, let's dare to say, I mean, um, not necessarily the most financial person, but he had a great kind of put down in a way. So someone from the Wall Street Journal basically um, said, um, uh, Mr. President, um, the deficit looks like it's out of control. It is 5% of GDP. Our debt to GDP is approaching 60, 60% of the economy. Uh, it's whatever, approaching one trillion, you know, you know mm. whatever the number was. Sir, are you worried? And he said, son, don't you worry. The deficit's big enough to take care of itself. You know, end. And you know what? The, the amazing thing was, he was right. Because yeah. growth was so strong, mm. it kind of, the budget deficits went away. But anyway, that was a different era. Let's see if the Biden approach works, but we better crack on. Um, we better crack on. Yeah, we've yeah. got, we've got, and I, I just, I feel like I ought to say, if anybody's listening to this and they think that Alan's not quite on top form, although I think he is on top form, um, we had a, a very long-standing esteemed colleague of of Coots who uh, it was his leaving party Alex's, last night. Yeah, Alex, Alex, Alex and Alex is is, is is famed as a wine lover. So yes. by all accounts, it was a very very good evening to which I wasn't invited, but I, I won't hold that against. If I slip up on my words, you'll know why. But let's crack on. Let's crack on. So what are the three things we need to know this week, Alan? So uh, last week we had Howard talking about how he incorporates momentum into into, um, helping helping the team pick stocks. So another look at that and a bit of a surprise. How's that performing year to date? And Mm. then, you know, dare I say, my favourite factor, because these are called factors, quality. Uh, mm. I'm going to talk a little bit about quality again. Um, so factors, so that's the kind of meat and potatoes. And then kind of six months on from the Credit Suisse demise, a yes. little over six months over the Credit Suisse demise. Mm. And Sarah, you know, if you ever read or hear investors say, you know, after this experience, I'm never going to do that again. Don't believe it. And I, yeah. We've got an example to go through on that. And then finally, I can't believe we've covered Beyonce. I can't, mm. and the impact on Swedish inflation. True story. 
report by Danske Bank. You can you can you can uh, Google it. Um, Taylor Swift or Swiftonomics, you know, Swiftonomics, um, yeah, yeah. You know, how can we haven't covered it? And and uh, kind of linking into you know w- you know why does GDP, especially in the UK, get revised upwards? Well, Swiftonomics, but well, let's let's yeah. go. Okay, well, let's. I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. Let's kick off then with this. As I say, you, we talked. We had Howard Sparks on. I believe it was the 31st of October. He was on. If you want to listen back to that episode, he was talking about US earnings. But we talked a little bit about his sort of approach, which is sort of very much momentum trading. And yeah, I guess it's it hasn't actually been a great year for momentum trading, has it? Well, not across the board. To be fair to Howard, momentum isn't the only thing he does. Mm. But he incorporates it into his investment approach, um, but the way he incorporates it is is it, it works and it helped to identify, for example, Nvidia amongst other stocks. But the surprising thing is that um, the when you try to formalize that, so MSCI has tried to formalize that, it's kind of hard to make it work. So, for example, um, you can buy an ETF, exchange traded fund, from many providers on Momentum. One provided by MSCI. If I tell you, Sarah, um, the US stock market is up 17% as we speak, yeah. how do you think Momentum would have done? If you would well, like Nvidia, Microsoft, etc. It, it, it should have done should have done even better than that, shouldn't it? You would think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. Wouldn't you? Uh no, only up two percent. Really? Yeah. You know why? They've no. got whipsawed. Uh that technical term. What does that mm. mean? So the way MSCI do it. They change their baskets in May and November. Okay. So um, previous winners, including last year, dollar stocks, healthcare, utilities, um, they they were held instead of the Nvidia's, the Microsofts, held with bigger weights. Um, you know, to, to be fair, no one's choosing ten stocks here. This is you know index construction. Mm. But if you like, it's late momentum. They bought into the Nvidia's of this world too late which is different from how Howard did it. And therefore, it, it really has lagged. To be fair, in the long run, it has been fine, but it is really remarkable how how poor it's been as a pure factor. So, I mean, especially in the US, but to a certain, certain extent over here, you can buy many, many, you can choose a factor and just invest in it. And mm. that's momentum. And I just want to kind of talk about quality again, because mm. ESG is in the press a lot and you might think hold on alan just said quality what's why is he bringing esg i'll, I'll explain exactly we just and so, remind us what what we mean by quality as well exactly we're not so, talking birkin so bags here are we yeah we're not talking lvmh or hermes what we're, what we're talking about is for example msca look at three factors very sensible return on equity profitability mm-hmm. okay the amount of debt low debt being good kind of quality yep. And, and then um, the, the, the volatility of earnings, they actually look at five years. So how volatile are the profits? Because a quality business is steady, if you like, a yeah. Nestle of this world, a Procter & Gamble of this world. Now, okay, um, those have been great investments. They're up 22% year to date. Okay. So, 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 so yeah, so quality investing is working really well. And in the long run, you know how hard it is. We've, we've covered active investing, investing versus passive investing, haven't, haven't we, Sarah? We have, yeah. Mm. Can't remember when. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely come back to it because it's an ongoing topic. Yeah. I mean, basically, quality investing is one of the few factors that have kept up with the U.S. equity market. Momentum hasn't, but quality has. Okay. Uh, so I think it's really interesting. Now, the link with ESG is this. 
Um, there are hundreds and hundreds. I just asked ChatGPT as an AI to tell me exactly how many there were. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it couldn't tell me. So I had to resort to old fashioned Google. <laughs> okay. uh, but there's hundreds and hundreds of um, academic papers. Does ESG work? And nearly all mm. of them say yes. But the one I like the most, which sounds like it's um, negative, but it's not. It's from Ed Heck, which is um, business school down in Nice. It's called Honey, I Shrank the ESG Alpha. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a 1980s film. It's a play on a 1980s film. I do remember that film. Remember yeah. with Rick. Hmm. Rick, God, you can tell this is not scripted. Rick Moranis, is it? It is, I think it is Rick Moranis. Yes. He's also in Ghostbusters, yeah. Anyway, mm. we digress. Anyway, <laughs> this research, which I think is exactly right, they show that good news, ESG investing works, environmental, yeah. social, and government investing works. Why mm -hmm. does it work? Well, because it's basically completely associated with or can be explained by quality investing. Because okay. if you think about it, if you start to underweight, I'm not talking anything about the Coots approach here, just talking generally. If you start to underweight the more volatile energy and commodity stocks, which which are have less of a weight in typical ESG indices, well, guess what? They're not considered quality companies. So I think mm. it's I, I stand by quality investing as a core investment mm. stock. So rather than seeing it as, you know, negative oh there's no esg alpha yeah of course there's no esg alpha it is all quality investing okay so essentially and what we're saying then is sort of esg funds typically by default not perhaps by intention end up sort of following a sort of quality strategy quality and a certain amount of growth if you if you think of it just intuitively mm. they're, they're going to be underweight if, if you think of it, the uk bp shell etc and look, these have been phenomenal companies in the long run, but volatile and overweight, more stable companies. Now, in the UK, they can be hard to find. Uh, mm. Unilever comes to mind, um, but not always. Um, but that's the intuition behind it. OK. And if we're talking about quality, we're talking about companies that offer good return on equity, have sensible levels of debt and have sort of limited volatility of earnings, essentially. Correct. That's There are many ways uh, of of doing this. this is the way MSCI do it it's pretty sensible to me mm. uh, there's other ways of looking at this as well but uh, you okay. know, that's, that's a good start okay well, so what about the future then what, what's the outlook then for the, for this sort of trading and for for other sort of factors that we haven't talked about well it's very easy talking about the past it's, you know if you ask me to talk about the future we yeah. will be doing that won't we about the um our homage to Byron Wien when we talk about um the the surprises of next year but look um, i stand by quality investing uh and, and it's not the best uh, it's not the best factor these are called factors investment mm -hmm. factor every year but it's so consistency and i so consistent yeah and, and i think that's underrated the consistency of quality investing look there's other ways investing investing growth value we've mentioned momentum yeah. but i i like the consistency of quality so i would stand by that um, I mean, quality, uh, uh, sorry, in contrast to quality, uh, value is having a terrible year, um, as, yeah. as you can expect, except in markets like Japan, actually, interestingly, in Japan, value is screaming up, um, which is an interesting development. But yeah, I mean, stick with quality. So you ask for prediction, quality. 
Okay. All right then. So that that's um sort of factor trading and that link between ESG and quality. Next up, it's as you say, it's roughly six months on from the what I've seen it referred to as the shotgun wedding between UBS and Credit Suisse. And and you mentioned at the top uh, of the podcast that um, investors have got very short memories, haven't they? Tell me about that. They What's have, been happening with UBS? We'll be brief on this one because we've got to leave a lot of time for Taylor Swift. So <laughs> um, what we're talking about here, call it bankruptcy, call it forced merger. Uh, what happened at the time? Okay. So um, basically um, subordinated debt holders were wiped out. So-called yeah. tokens, AT1s, mm. were wiped out controversially, about 17 billion of, of value um, in this shotgun merger. So just looking at the maths to where we are today, um, senior bondholders, so this is senior bondholders, absolutely fine. They're up 17%. Wow. There was some That's concern good. that could the Swiss do a Lehman here? And mm. thankfully they've learned from them lessons because Lehman defaulted on its senior debt. They didn't, but bonds were priced 80, 85 in some cases. Okay. There's a nice 17% return on Credit Suisse senior debt. Shareholders, as it stands today, they've merged into UBS. Mm. If you're a Credit Suisse shareholder, you've merged into UBS and um, UBS shares have gone up a bit, but you're still down 50%. Mm. So, look, if you put it, let's put it this way. You put a million uh, euros into senior debt, you've got now got 1.17, put a million okay. euros just before into equity, you've now got 500,000. You put a million euros into Cocos, you've got zero. Yeah. Everything's gone. So at the time, many people said, <laughs> oh, we're never going to trust the Swiss, we're never yeah. going to buy Cocos again. Guess what? UBS issued a Cocoa. It was somewhat it uh, wasn't it, Sarah? You had a look at the numbers. It was. I looked at the numbers. I think so. They they issued three point five billion dollars, but there was a demand of something like twenty five billion dollars for that. Exactly. Which seems incredible. Billion. Very short memories people have got. They do. It started with a ten percent coupon, mm. so they started saying, "Oh, we're going to pay ten percent," and that obviously got a lot of people excited, and then and they forgot about credit. So to be fair, those experts listening in, I know this structure was slightly different. This structure is meant to convert into equity as opposed to yes. completely written off. So it is slightly different. Anyway, in the end, it, the, the coupon, I think, was a little over nine. But, um, you know, uh, you know, decent compensation um, for for the risk of UBS going bust or having to merge with someone. Um, you would think nine percent. It sounds big. Right. So fair enough. But uh, yeah, short memories, Sarah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Never. This time is different to, to quote uh, that oft used phrase in when we're talking about right. markets and economics. Hopefully this time is different. All right. Then, let's move on to our, our big topic for this week. Swiftonomics. We've talked about the Beyonce blip. And if, for those of you that want to listen back to that episode, that was from the 20th of June uh, when we talked about how Beyonce had basically been being responsible for, I think, was it Sweden's inflation? Blamed, because that's where she started the concert. Yes. Uh, God, uh, exactly. yeah, it, it seems like yesterday. But yeah, Swiftonomics. And, and also this ties in with this point that we've talked about before, the fact that, that sort of GDP numbers are often revised up. And why are they revised up? And maybe they're not taking into consideration some of the sort of secondary effects of some of these things that are sort of quite vibrant in the economy. The service sector in general, yeah. I mean, mm. before we go there, though, 
Taylor Swift, a fan. And what was your last rock concert you went to? Well, do you know what? I actually I don't own a Taylor Swift. I've never downloaded a Taylor Swift song, but I do think she's good. She's on, well, she's evidently good at what she does because she's very successful. I think she does good pop songs. As much as I know about and last pop, concert for you, just to see where your taste is. <laughs> My last concert. I haven't been to a concert since before COVID, and it was Brian Ferry at the Royal Albert Hall, which was one of the Classy. best ones I've ever Classy. been to. Ah, it's a good one. I, I went to one just a couple of weeks ago. Not okay. as fast as that. A nineteen eighties, nineties naff. Some people think naff. I think he's a genius. Rick Astley. Uh, do, 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 oh, Rick. Oh, do you know what? Actually, I imagine he's probably quite. The, it's a good event, is it? Is, it's great <laughs> event. Very he's very funny. He's a superb drummer, by the way. Oh, really? An absolutely superb. He started a superb drummer. He looks mm. great. He's only a little mm -hmm. bit younger than me, I think, or maybe even the same age. I don't know. He looks fantastic and his voice is good. So, mm. no doubt, I would be considered common, right? As a Rick Astley fan. Or maybe not. But maybe that's what, you, do, you don't know. Probably the Royal Albert Hall is common. But maybe Rick Astley isn't. Okay, there you go. So, yeah. Rick, so look, Taylor Swift. Yeah, I, I'm at danger for me. I'm at danger of sounding like one of those judges, you know, who you know said who's told about the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. But it kind of passed me by until uh, you know I'd not never really listened to any songs. And then there's mm. a, a very good obscure, and I'll get the name for next time. Australian zombie music, and there's okay. a song called "Shake It Off." Yeah, which is a classic. Which is a hit from it's, Taylor. It's a good one. I'm really yeah. sounding like an old judge now. <laughs> Even anyway, I know that one. Yeah, I, I have to admit, you know, it, it caught my ear, so mm. to speak. And uh, yeah, impressive. But look, um, the business of Taylor Swift. Yeah. Phenomenal. And do you know what her father does? Well, um, apparently he's in the sort of investment business, isn't he? He's got the same job as us. He's a wealth manager at Merrill Lynch. Why? Yeah, so she's got her money sorted. Do, does he still have to work? Surely he can retire now on the proceeds of his daughter's very successful pop career. Yeah, but, you know, P I, well, it depends. I'm sure one is looking after her money, but two, us investment people, we love it. I don't want to retire. <laughs> uh, not completely retire anyway. I might I no. might ease away and be an advisor, but I want to carry on. So, yeah, yeah look, um, so the serious point is, one... Hmm. The numbers, the numbers yeah. are phenomenal. But then what I want to look at is, is kind of behind the scenes of the numbers. And there's, firstly, there's legit, but almost certainly not reported in GDP. The Airbnbs, the yeah. small cafes, restaurants around, hotels. Mm. Okay, the big chains will get reported quickly in G GDP. But something definitely not, the black market. Do you want to yes. the black market and Taylor Swift tickets? Go on, okay. well, f well, first of all, what's the cover price of a Taylor Swift ticket? If so I was going to, if I was able to buy one, well, in London it's about one hundred and eighty pounds. Okay, no, that's okay. First, yeah, first, first question I have is, is um, well, firstly, they're doing, she's doing thirteen concerts in London. Okay. Yeah, and mm. uh, only six in Germany, and you know Germany's a much bigger mm. economy, obviously. Yeah. What's going on there? You know, that, what, that, you, you, you spent time in Germany. Yeah, I did. I mean, th there is a thriving um, sort of live music culture in Germany, but it seems to be a lot. It's, it's like the thing you went to at the Royal Albert Hall. It's a lot of Rick Astley and that kind of thing. It seems to be very much kind of sort of 80s bands or Eros Ramazzotti, who, for those who don't know, is an Italian crooner, 
or you know kind of german heavy metal bands but i'm surprised that it, 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 it maybe indicates perhaps the sort of reluctance in the german company to spend huge amounts of money going to see um the latest pop star okay exactly so and it shows the uk is such a service econ economy yeah. I, I think so her first concert in uh, in uh, so she starts in um sweden again so no doubt they'll blame that for oh um, so i'm just looking at StubHub, and there's many on for the first date in london there's 500 tickets available okay. right the mm. cheapest is 1500 each wow and if you want a decent seat 4200 each crikey this i don't get the most expensive front standing 6200 each it's still less than a birkin bag you know what i, I have got a 10 year old daughter who is into mm. taylor swift no surprise so I showed her these prices and she said, get them for me and I'll pay you back. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's well, what, what interest are you charging your 10-year-old daughter? Yeah, right? exactly. Well, we'll come back to it. Now, for those who want to go and see Taylor Swift, mm. in the black market this Sunday, tickets that are available in the black market for £35 in Rio de Janeiro. So forget then, the ridiculous black market tickets in yeah. London. Get a flight to Rio. Yeah. Uh, have a lovely time there and get nice. to watch it for nothing. So, you know, that tells you something about um, South American um, economics right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I saw, sort of, before we sort of broaden this out a little bit, I did see that apparently when, for the opening night of the year's tour, which was in the stadium that was also the venue for the Super Bowl about a month earlier, they took, there was more business generated by that one night, that first night of her concert tour, than the Super Bowl and I oh I always think of the Super Bowl as the biggest sort of economic event in the US as far as sort of you know revenue and advertising and general sort of consumer sort of spending um and also I saw what was the other thing I saw there's I think it was Morgan Stanley have estimated that the combined contribution of Barbenheimer which is the Barbie movie Oppenheimer movie Taylor Swift and Beyonce, going back to our Beyonce blip, they reckon that will have added $8.5 billion to the US economy in Q3. That's incredible. It, it is absolutely incredible. So I completely agree. And, and But I'm, I'm talking about the stuff that, that's formally included, off the radar. Hmm. So it comes back to revisions, this pessimism about the UK. Yeah. Um, we've already had a, we're, we're now post-pandemic in the middle of the pack. Um, revision worth about 2%. But I've gone back previous occasions, 2010 to 2012, upward revision in total of 2.5%. And, and 1990 to 1994, they had to up, uh, the, the upward revision was as much as 4%. So even before this digital service economy, the UK has always been, look, we're no cheerleaders for the UK. We recognise it's tough times. But take UK GDP and any comments like the UK is struggling in recession, um, realise that the true numbers are, are much higher. And, and Taylor Swift is, a, is, is kind of a, a great example of that. Mm. And yeah, look at it, you know, 13 concerts in the UK versus seven in Germany, um, just a couple in Italy. And the UK is absolutely a powerhouse when it comes to the service sector in this kind of, in this kind of business. Yeah. And good luck to her. Uh, I'm not buying yeah. tickets to the black market, but if anyone has any, do feel to get it at face value. Do feel to get in touch, feel free to get in touch. Yeah, and because I, I oh, just on the final note on that, I did see some the research, and I can't remember who had done it now. That basically, sort of Gen Z or Gen Z uh, and millennials prefer to spend money on life experiences rather than save. 
So I guess this is a story that's going to run and run, this sort of vibrancy in the economy as a result of sort of spending on experiences, spending on going to concerts, going out for dinner, holidays, flights, rather than big ticket items. Exactly right. Exactly right. I think I think um, I think that's it. So look, a bit of fun with the Taylor Swift Swiftonomics. We should have been on it earlier because you know people have been talking mm. about it. Uh, you know, I mean Bloomberg uh, have a whole section on it. You know, every every month or so. Uh, so you know, quite incredible. But I'm kind of interested. Uh, you know, in, in in as I say, what's not included in GDP and maybe. Yeah an indicator that the economy is stronger. And just finally, because I do remember 2018 contrast, Glastonbury, normally a diff- difficult ticket, uh, got them face value at HMV um, wow. no, a, a month before. And that, yeah. that was a real economic crisis, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and and um, and so forth. You were nowhere near that today. Yeah. Okay. But with that... Um, yeah, I think Alex is uh, wines are starting to you know, slow me down. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I won't. I won't sort of challenge you anymore. <clears throat> Thank you very much, very much, Alan. A reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are not intended to constitute investment advice or fashion advice, for that matter. Are accurate at the time of recording and are subject to change. Thank you very much again, Alan, for joining me today. Don't forget to check out the podcast page on coots.com. And of course, you can subscribe and please review the podcast um, wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next Need to Know, bye for now.